Hello and welcome to 31 Nights of Fright, presented by In Our Honest Opinion. My name is Adam and I will be your host through 31 different horror films and scary movies. As a lifelong horror film and scary movie buff, it was a lot of fun going and revisiting these horror films. With that being said, let's get on with episode one. Starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance, it's John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. Halloween tells the story of six-year-old Michael Myers, and in 1963, he murdered his 17-year-old sister, Judith. He was sentenced and locked away for 15 years. But on October 30th, 1978, he's being transferred for a court date, and 21-year-old Michael Myers steals a car and escapes. He returns to his quiet town of Haddonfield, Illinois, and he's looking for his next victims. Halloween is a certified classic. This is a very iconic film that's up there with some of the others in the genre, such as Jason from Friday the 13th or Freddy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. I have actually seen all of the Halloween films throughout the years. It's a series that I've never been completely in love with. It's a series I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed it to keep watching. This first one definitely establishes a good start for the series. It establishes Michael Myers as somebody that you definitely do not want to see outside. Uh, You don't want to see him outside of the silver screen or if you're watching at home from your TV. He's a big hulk of a serial killer that pretty much does not quit he has no emotion whatsoever and is just a killing machine halloween also introduced jamie lee curtis into the world this here is such an iconic performance by her and i would say even in halloween 2 it was iconic as well she never really grew out of the scream queen label that people may have given her And honestly, she's probably one of the best actors in the movie. The movie is filled with some amateurish feeling acting. It's also one of those films that the score, as soon as you hear that score, the wonderful John Carpenter score, you know it's Halloween. You know it is a Halloween movie. It makes you think of the intro for Halloween. It's so iconic, it is Halloween. Not only that, John Carpenter fills the movie with some pretty brutal killings. And a lot of them are shown from perspective of Michael Myers. Look at the opening intro to Halloween when he murders his sister. He actually goes and has the camera as if you're looking through the eyes of Michael Myers. It's a well-done scene, and it reminds me a lot of uh, Psycho, and I'm sure that a lot of critics and such have compared it to that, but it reminds me a lot of the shower scene from Psycho. With that being said, the movie is well done, but it stands as not one of my favorite John Carpenter films. I'm probably more partial to The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, or even They Live. That's not to say that it's a bad movie. It's actually a really good horror movie. And with the right setting, this movie is very intense. 
it does a good job of filling you with dread and I do have to touch upon one thing in the movie and that is going to be Donald Pleasance's Dr. Loomis. I think he does a good job. He did a good job in in here and he was kind of a series staple. He was up there with Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers himself. However, I think that he goes a little over the top sometimes as far as uh as far as the way he portrays it. Sometimes in an effort to stop things, his Dr. Loomis seems kind of goofy or kooky a little bit. And maybe that's one reason why people don't really believe him or do not want to take him seriously sometimes. But other than that, this is a movie I can really recommend to people. If you like slasher films, um, definitely give it a go. I'm going to think that probably most everybody has seen this film by now. However, if you haven't, please go ahead and check it out. It's one of those films that could definitely get under your skin. So go ahead, go and pick up a copy of Halloween or go to a theater that's showing it. There are lots of theaters that show old movies. And I'm sure with Halloween right around the corner, it's probably one that's going to be played. But if not, please pick up a copy of Halloween. It's one of those films that you need to go and either see it in a theater with, uh, with a great crowd or just go ahead and watch it alone. Turn the lights off, crank up the volume, and enjoy the movie. That's it for this episode. Again, my name is Adam, and you can find me at Adam underscore FBGM on Twitter, and you can also hear me on the IOHO podcast. But I will catch you on the next episode, and good night. Hello and welcome to night number two of 31 Nights of Frights, presented by In Our Honest Opinion. As always, my name is Adam and I will be your host, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, and Michael Bean. This is James Cameron's 1984 classic, The Terminator, and I know what you're saying, That it's not a horror film. Well, I have reasons to believe that it is. I'll get into that very soon. But before that, let's go ahead and run down the plot. Disguised as a human, a cyborg assassin known as a Terminator. He travels from 2029 to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor. Sent to protect Sarah is Kyle Reese, who tells Sarah about the coming of Skynet an AI system that will spark a nuclear holocaust. Sarah is targeted because Skynet knows that her unborn son will lead the fight against them. With the virtually unstoppable Terminator in hot pursuit, she and Kyle attempt to escape. Before we get into the Terminator being a horror film, or in my opinion, being a horror film, I would like to state, this is one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite series This here is the one. I loved it as a kid. I love it as an adult. And I realized that a lot of people love Terminator 2. However, the first one is the one I always go back to. 
is the one that had the most impact, even though as a kid, I saw Terminator 2 uh, first before the first movie. Um, I didn't even know that there was a Terminator 1. All I knew was it looked awesome. My mom took me to see it. Probably the first R-rated film I've ever seen. But with that being said, let's get on to the actual uh, reasons of why I think it's a horror film. So by now, you probably have listened to the first episode of 31 Nights of Frights. Um, That was our Halloween episode. And in Halloween, Michael Myers is a unstoppable force. He is a killer in a mask. He is stalking his prey, keeps coming, and he's going to get his victims. That's actually the basis for the Terminator. Sure, I know it's sci-fi. I get that. We got killer robots. That definitely sounds sci-fi to me. However, what we got here, we have a machine that is an unstoppable force, and he is hunting Sarah Connor. Does that sound familiar to a lot of slasher films that you may have watched? Maybe Halloween? Maybe Friday the 13th? James Cameron put a sci-fi spin on the traditional slasher film. And here, honestly, it works beautifully. It's one of those films that keeps up the intensity. It's got a great story. And the cast is great as well. It was a movie that was a star maker for Arnold. I said about iconic in the Halloween episode. And Arnold is iconic. People recognize him still to this day as the Terminator. Even if he doesn't have to be the face of the Terminator series and franchise, he still is. No matter what, he will always be there. And I can't think of anything more scary than somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger, specifically 1970s to 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger chasing after you. That, my friends, is pretty scary. However, that's not to say that the movie is actually all horror. Sure, it's not. You have things such as a love story. You have action set pieces. But still, going back to the horror aspect, one of the effects that maybe doesn't hold up as well today, the stop motion of Arnold digging out his own eye. That looks really, really nasty and can be pretty disturbing when you see it fall into the sink of water. So while I'm evaluating this movie, I'm going to say that most of the special effects do hold up. Most of the acting holds up. The look of the movie is great, and it has a general, I guess, sense of brooding about it. You get the feeling that Kyle and Sarah are getting chased by this machine. Something also needs to be said about the dream sequences. You have Kyle dreaming about the future, and it looks like a pretty scary future. You have that Terminator that invades the Resistance, and he's shooting and killing everybody. It's actually kind of a creepy scene in what a lot of people consider to be an action or a sci-fi movie. It's not. It's not a movie that fits into any one type or genre. James Cameron 
specifically built this around a slasher theme and slasher feel. And I think it plays out exactly like that. It plays out like a slasher movie. But there's a little bit more to it than that. So this isn't going to be a movie that immediately springs to mind for horror. But I do invite you to go and take a second look at it. And basically look at it from a different perspective. But don't just look at it from a horror perspective. Look at it from that action. Look at it from the love story. Look at it for everything that it is. And just know that it does fit firmly into the horror genre. I don't expect you to watch it and come away saying, Oh man, that movie gave me the chills. It probably won't. But it will if you think about it after the fact or discuss it with somebody you might watch it with. But with that being said, and I think I'm going to wrap this one up. So all I ask is watch the Terminator with a different perspective and keep all of those different types of films that James Cameron has crafted into one with a slasher shell. But anyway, you can catch me on Twitter at Adam underscore FBGM. Also, be sure to check out our podcast in our honest opinion. And I will catch you on the next episode. Good night. Hello and welcome to night number three of 31 Nights of Frights presented by In Our Honest Opinion. I am your host, Adam. Starring Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, and Michael Rooker. This is James Gunn's 2006 box office flop and later cult classic, Slither. Set in the small town of Wheelsey, local car salesman Grant Grant, played by Michael Rooker, witnesses a meteorite crash to Earth. And Grant is infected by a parasite. Because of his infection, he consumes large amounts of meat and feels the need to spread his infection to others. Despite being infected by an alien organism, it doesn't change the fact that he does in fact still love his wife. And local town sheriff Bill Party, played by Nathan Fillion, is getting to the bottom of all the missing animals throughout the town. Slither is one of the instances where it's a horror comedy, and I'm going to say that it actually works. And it mostly works because of James Gunn's script. This here is his first directorial effort of a major motion picture, and also his first attempt at writing a major motion picture. He got his start writing some trauma films, most notably Tromeo and Juliet. This movie definitely has a trauma-like feel to it. It sort of feels like a big-budget trauma film, but it doesn't really dive into the kind of trashy nature that a trauma film normally would. What you have here is just an entertaining horror comedy that is filled with some pretty amazing special effects. I can't say enough about the way that they blended the CGI and the, the practical effects. It really is a wonder. 
If I would have to pick one of my favorite things about this movie is the fact that not only is it a horror comedy, but it's also kind of a love story in its own twisted way. It's obvious that Grant absolutely loves his wife, and it works. One of the things we definitely have to touch upon is something that the movie is known for. It's actually known for the woman exploding in the shed. And yes, it is crazy. It's something you never thought you would see in a movie. And it's probably one of my favorite scenes just for its shocking nature. I think one of the things that really carries this movie is not just the script and the direction, which is pretty amazing from a first-time director, or let me say this, first-time director that finally had a budget to play with. Honestly, the strength of the movie is probably the cast. Everybody is 100% invested in this movie. Nathan Fillion is perfect as the sheriff, and then you have Michael Rooker as the infected Grant Grant. Enough can't be said about the names of the people. Everyone here has a pure small-town America-style name. Elizabeth Banks also turns in a good part as Starla, and you can tell she's 100% invested as well. It's one of those movies that seems that everybody enjoyed being on set. So, if so much of this movie works, why in the world did it flop? You know what? I don't have a good answer for that. Maybe... We weren't ready for an entertaining monster movie that seemed to be inspired by many films that came before it, such as maybe The Blob, maybe a little bit of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We do have to talk about two movies that it does actually, I don't know, rip off, maybe. I like to think of it as more of a homage. And that would be David Cronenberg's movie Shivers, And also, it kind of rips off uh, Fred Decker's Night of the Creeps. Is it blatant? Sure. However, there's tons of different references in this film. James Gunn even goes and does little references to other movies that you might not necessarily think about, such as John Carpenter's The Thing. There's also a few shots that remind me of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. It's one of those movies that it just shows that James Gunn had a love for the genre. He loves horror films, and this was his loving tribute to them. With that being said, there is some fun cameos as well. There is Jenna Fisher uh, as the secretary at the police station, and also Lloyd Kaufman, head of Trauma Pictures. He actually shows up as well. Slither is a movie that I can't recommend enough to people. It's a horror comedy. Again, I'm going to say, it works. It's one of those that if you just put it on, if you're in the right mindset, you're going to have a blast with it. I can't recommend this movie enough to everybody. And that is going to conclude night number three of In Our Honest Opinions, 31 Nights of Frights. You can find me on Twitter at Adam underscore FBGM. And also, please feel free to check out our In Our Honest Opinion podcast. Good night. Hello and welcome to night number four of 31 Nights of Frights presented by 
in our honest opinion. My name is Adam, and I'll be your host. Starring Tom Atkins, Jason Lively, and Jill Whitlow, this is Fred Decker's 1986 cult classic, Night of the Creeps. In 1959, an alien experiment crashes to Earth and infects a fraternity member. They freeze the body, but in modern day, two guys that are pledging a fraternity accidentally thaw the corpse, which proceeds to infect the campus with parasites that transform their hosts into killer zombies. Night of the Creeps is honestly just an out-and-out fun movie. It's one of those that like Slither, which was on the last episode, it's one of those that you can pop in, sit down, relax, have a good time with it. It's a movie that, when I was a kid, it was on HBO and Cinemax quite a bit, and just one of those I happened to catch. Thankfully, Sony, about 10 years ago, brought it back out on Blu-ray. It was kind of a forgotten film, and it's a film that definitely needs to be watched. This was Fred Decker's second directorial effort, with his first being the Shane Black-written cult favorite Monster Squad. Fred Decker seems to have two cult favorites under his belt. Let's not talk about RoboCop 3. Night of the Creeps actually has a lot going on. It's not only a alien parasite movie that turns people into zombies, there's also a slight slasher subplot, and I would say that the way the movie opens in the 1950s, it's actually a perfect way to open. It genuinely feels like it is 1959. Having it shot in black and white definitely helps set the mood as well. Not to say that the whole movie is in black and white, but just a little opening segment. But I would say that I actually got ahead of myself. There's actually an odd opening to the movie where it starts on an alien ship. There's little alien guys running around. Some kind of malicious alien doctor, I'm assuming, that has the experiment. Other ones are firing laser guns at him to try to stop him from sending it to Earth. I don't know. It's an odd way to open the movie, but it's kind of charming in its own way. The aliens themselves... They're tiny, they're rubbery, everything you would expect from an 80s horror film or even 80s sci-fi film in general. When the film actually gets to the, to the 80s, it's one of those that it feels like the 80s. It's definitely a product of its time. I'm not going to try to dress it up, but you know, with the way a lot of things such as Netflix's Stranger Things being set in the 80s, it's definitely a movie that I think a lot of people would probably wind up enjoying. The movie itself is well cast. I really like Tom Atkins. Uh, he was awesome in other movies such as Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Maniac Cop, and you may even recognize him from Lethal Weapon. He does a good job here as the cop that always has a one-liner such as It's Miller Time and... Every time he wants to hear something as far as what's going on in a crime scene, he always says, thrill me. It's actually one of the most entertaining things of the movie. He's a wisecracking cop that has a dark past. Jason Lively is somebody that you may know from some other 80s uh, films. 
One of the big ones that you may know him from, though, is National Lampoon's European Vacation. Also, you have Jill Whitlow as the girl of his dreams, and she does a good job here as well. She has done a few other things throughout her career. You may know her from the movie Porky's or even Weird Science, where she didn't really have that big of a role. From what I remember, I haven't seen Weird Science in a long time. So, in Night of the Creeps, the experiment is actually slugs that was sent to Earth. The slugs go in through people's mouths, and the practical effects, because they had to be practical for its time, look great. The slugs, if you really look closely, you can probably see strings pulling them, but it's okay. I'm willing to not see the strings. So in addition to that, there is a subplot going on with Tom Atkins' character, and that's where the little bit of slasher stuff comes into play. And this movie definitely has a lot going on. It has a little bit of a feel of everything in the kitchen sink, I would have to say. However, it all gels really well. It doesn't feel like anything is shortchanged. It's actually really well thought out. And Fred Decker, he's got some serious wit, And it shows that he's good friends with Shane Black. It definitely has a little bit of that Monster Squad type of quality to it. This here is a movie that was forgotten and is definitely ripe for revisiting. And if you haven't seen it, definitely go into it. Check it out. It's a great movie. It's fun. And I think you'll definitely have a blast watching it. That is going to conclude night four of 31 Nights of Frights. You can catch me on Twitter at Adam underscore FBGM and also please check out our podcast in our honest opinion. Good night. Hello and welcome to night number five of 31 Nights of Frights presented by In Our Honest Opinion. I am your host, Adam. Starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, this is David Cronenberg's 1986 classic, The Fly. Kind of, sort of, based on the 1958 film of the same title, The Fly, The Fly from 1986 tells the story of Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, who is working on a revolutionary teleportation device. He winds up falling for a journalist, who is played by Gina Davis, who is writing a story on him. After numerous misfires with his teleportation device, he decides to try it on himself, and that is where a common housefly hops into the teleportation device with him, which leads to a merger of human and fly DNA. Initially, Seth Brundle appears to have undergone a successful teleportation, but the fly cells begin to take over his body. As he becomes increasingly fly-like, and his journalist girlfriend Veronica is horrified as the person she once loved deteriorates into a unrecognizable monster. One of the things right off the bat uh, you may notice, this is a perfect vehicle for Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum, I don't know if anybody has ever seen him in an interview, but he's usually very 
twitchy, I guess would be a good way to put it. And in this this movie, uh, that's actually on full display here. He's in full Jeff Goldblum mode, and it is a absolutely perfect role for him. Everyone else in the movie does pretty well with what they're given. Uh, Gina Davis does a pretty good job here. It is believable with the love story and how she's attracted to, I guess, the oddball nature of Jeff Goldblum's Seth Brundle character. Uh, you have the other one there, John Getz, has the jealous ex-boyfriend, who is also her editor. Uh, he does a pretty good job as far as being, like, pretty slimy. One of the examples of his odd and slimy dirtball nature is taking a shower in your ex-girlfriend's place. That's a pretty odd thing to do. One of the big things with this movie is the special effects. And I hate to be one of those that's always talking about how amazing the special effects are, but if this was made today, chances are it would not be made with practical effects. They would probably make him look more like a fly, sort of like the original film. Or they would uh, maybe just fill it with a whole bunch of CGI. Here, we have wonderful practical effects that are done by Chris Wallace, who if you do not know his name... He actually did the special effects for Gremlins, so all of the Gremlins and Gizmo uh, creations in that movie are because of him. Here, he totally outdoes himself. Uh, the transformations of Seth Brundle are absolutely horrific. It's one of those movies that it still amazes me with the effects that are on display. It's one of those movies that I don't think could ever properly be replicated. I know there was talks uh, years ago that David Cronenberg was going to make a sequel, his own sequel, not the Fly 2 that was made, I believe, in 1990 or 91. Um, but yes, uh, it's something that'll never happen again. With that being said, there is that love story aspect, and it's one of the driving factors in the movie. It's a movie that, when it was made, director David Cronenberg, his father was actually dying of cancer. Uh, it was a terminal cancer, terminal disease. And David Cronenberg is getting his demons out on screen here. It definitely could be taken as someone dying from a terminal disease, and as that disease progresses in the person, they become less and less like how you knew them, and into something that might not be recognizable. You know it's the person, but it's not what you remember them to be. Uh, having gone through that personally not too long ago uh, with my own father, I think that uh, having rewatched this, it actually brought that to light even more. It's one of those movies that it has a lot more to say than just uh, being a simple horror film or love story or anything like that there's definitely the disease aspect on display one of the things that I think Cronenberg had an obsession with was is actually body horror that's what he's known for uh, if you watch films like Videodrome um, James Woods's character winds up transforming into something different 
Uh, you have the movie Shivers, which uh, I could even group that into being inspired by uh, um, Slither and uh, the Creeps being inspired by Shivers. But he seems to have that sort of uh, weird fetish in a way as far as the human body transforming. But back to the actual movie, uh, it probably features one of the absolute saddest endings to any uh, any film. I'm not going to spoil it here. Uh, it's one of those things that I think you need to experience it on your own. I try my best to not include spoilers, and uh, this is definitely one that you should not have spoiled for yourself if you have not seen it. One last thing on the fly. I think it's surprising, actually, who is producer of it, and also the fact that this producer does not have his name on the film at all. And I'm talking about James Brooks. That's right, the same James Brooks that brought us movies like Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Spaceballs, uh, Blazing Saddles. Uh, he actually had his name left off of this because of the fact that he did not want people to think that it was a comedy. This was not the first time that he has done something like this, though. Uh, he also did it with David Lynch's The Elephant Man, which, while not horror, if uh, you guys haven't seen it, I recommend checking that one out too. It's it's a good one. But with that being said, that is going to end this one. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Adam underscore FBGM. And then also please give a listen to our podcast uh, in our honest opinion. Good night. Hello and welcome to night number six of 31 Nights of Frights presented by In Our Honest Opinion. My name is Adam and I will be your host. Starring Alexandra Esso, Amanda Fuller, and Noah Segan, this is Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmer's 2014 Hollywood satire, Starry Eyes. So there's a lot of things going on, and the plot is actually going to be tough to describe. So I'm going to use an official one here. A hopeful young starlet uncovers the ominous origins of the Hollywood elite and enters into a deadly agreement in exchange for fame and fortune. So this one might actually be an obscure one for you guys. I know it was on Netflix back in the day. I don't know if it's still on there now. If it is, you should definitely check it out. Um, it's one of those movies that when you start watching it, it was something that I couldn't stop watching, but I definitely prefer some, I guess, artistic merit sometimes to some of the films that I watch. This one here is something that was described by critics as if David Lynch and David Cronenberg got together and made a film, this is probably what they would turn out. And I think that's a pretty good, uh, accurate statement. It's one of those films, too, that has an amazing score, and the music is fantastic. The music actually reminds me a little bit of John Carpenter, in a way. But on to the actual movie itself. Um, it's really tough to describe. It gave me a little bit of a feel of Rosemary's Baby when I was watching it. Uh, maybe some Roman Polanski, which is actually funny that it would have a little bit of a feel of his types of films as well. 
mostly because it seems to be a satire on Hollywood. Now I say satire, it's not exactly a funny satire. This is a dark and somewhat bleak movie. Uh, the, the character of Sarah, played by Alexandra Esso here, the stuff that she is subjected to, and even the torture that she performs on herself um, and physical harm is actually a little bit on the tough-to-watch side. Her way of relieving stress is actually by pulling out her own hair and the way it's shown here in the movie can be tough to watch so I'm giving it as a heads up um, just in case stuff like that may bother you uh, it didn't necessarily bother me but it was definitely something again tough to get through but she is perfectly cast in the role um, she has a range and I guess general bubbly nature about herself uh, that completely works for the movie. She's an aspiring actress, and she just hasn't gotten her big break yet. And so, with that being said there, one of the brilliant things that the directors did is actually before she gets the role, or even the second audition, everything in Hollywood looks bleak. However, then, once she gets that second audition and is called back... She actually goes and everything looks bright now, like everything is fully saturated. It's actually sunny the way that we think that Hollywood in California would look like. But it's not all good. Remember when I said that it's a satire? I believe that the movie is trying to make a statement, sadly, about things that young actresses and actors uh, would do to get a part. And she does some pretty bad things to not only herself but also kind of degrades herself in one of the scenes with the movie producer and I can't help but think that now in the Me Too and the Time's Up climate um, I can't help but think that this movie was trying to say about it before it even started before it was a well-known thing that people talk about before it was kind of a hush-hush but this movie kind of brought it to the forefront a little bit, and it seems to be playing on that idea and notation that there is a lot of scumbag producers and directors and such in Hollywood. Acting across the board is pretty good. I would say that it is naturalistic as far as the way everybody is acting throughout the film. Um, I want to say again that, that Alexandra Esso's character... The, the movie would completely hinge. It would be a make-or-break movie if she either gave a good or a bad performance, and she gives a great performance here. It turns out that the actual movie company that is producing this, old movie studio called Australia's Pictures, and it seems to be run by a group of Satanists, of all things. So basically, in order for her to get this role... She pretty much has to sell her soul to the devil and die and be reborn into a what she and Hollywood would be considered beautiful. She definitely has some body issues throughout the entire thing. It really is a thing of how far would you go to get this role? How far would you go to get to that next step in life? And she literally dies and becomes a new person. The parts where she actually is decomposing throughout the movie is, again, a strong performance. And 
also, again, something tough to watch. Uh, there are other things that are included as far as the Hollywood aspect. There seems to be reference to the Charles Manson murders uh, throughout uh, one point in the movie. And then also I will say that it's a movie that almost defies explanation. You could even go and say that during the movie uh, she is not just doing these transformations that she's actually acting in the movie that you're actually witnessing maybe what this mystery movie is about maybe this is about Hollywood and her rise to becoming an actual actress but there's some definite creepy moments throughout there is dark figures in robes I'm assuming part of the cult of the Satanists um it's definitely a movie that would be best experienced. It's hard to really describe this movie, but I do know that you should see it if you are in the mood for something different. And if you like your horror films to be a little bit more on the artistic side, uh, there's definitely some underlying tones and meanings there. And it's a well done film overall. I'm looking forward to what um, the directors will turn out next which as far as I know is an adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, So that should actually be fun as well. Uh, but with that being said, that's going to end this episode and this night. So again, you can find me on Twitter at Adam underscore FBGM. And also please give a listen to our podcast uh, in our honest opinion. Good night. Hello and welcome to night number 7 of 31 Nights of Frights, presented by Inner Honest Opinion. My name is Adam and I will be your host. Starring Bruce Campbell and Ellen Sandweiss, this is Sam Raimi's 1981 low-budget classic, The Evil Dead. Five college students go to a cabin in the woods and find a book called the Necronomicon, which has the power to unleash evil spirits, as well as whose goal is to possess the living so that they can live again. So as it stands, there's not much to really be said about this movie that other, other people have not said before and said better. However, I do want to provide my thoughts on this. Uh, it's one of those movies that... I remember always seeing at a Suncoast Motion Picture Company, which if any of you uh, listeners out there might remember, it was a company that specialized specifically in VHS and Laserdiscs. I always saw the Evil Dead sitting there. I had no idea what it was about other than looking at the back of the box and then seeing the uh, horrific uh, makeup Skip forward to middle school, maybe even uh, freshman year in high school. I decided to pick up a copy of it from uh, my local Kmart on VHS, of all things, and I was kind of blown away by it. It's a movie that, yes, it's low budget. Uh, some of the acting is very amateurish, uh, but that's actually to be expected from a movie that was made over the course of, I believe, four or five years 
And not only that, the budget of the film was under $250,000. This was also a time in my life when I was starting to appreciate uh, the actual direction of a film. This is one that won't win any, you know, Oscars or anything like that, obviously. However, if you look at the way the movie is done, the direction is super, super impressive. Sam Raimi has full control of the movie, and for his directorial debut, it's just one of those films that you're not expecting it to actually be as good as what it is. The camera here is always moving. It never stops. It's something truly unique, and it's one of those things that makes you wonder how in the world Sam Raimi was able to pull this off, especially on a shoestring budget Uh, a low-budget horror film nonetheless. This is also the first movie to actually have Bruce Campbell in it, and it is a star-making vehicle for him. However, his Ash character here is kind of a wimp. He doesn't really come into being a hero until the second and third movie roll around. Ellen Sandweiss is pretty good in her part, as Cheryl, who would be uh, Bruce Campbell, Ash's sister. Um, She actually does a pretty good job here. Uh, You have the other ones, such as Betsy Baker as Linda. It's just one of those movies that it should not have turned out even close to as good as what it did. It's amazing that that it did. I think all of the special effects in the movie hold up pretty nicely, especially with the budget considered. Uh, everything looks suitably gory and nasty, just as Sam Raimi intended it to. Also, it earns its NC-17 uh, with ease. That's right, this is a movie that has not been re-rated or anything like that. It's still NC-17, And it's funny, it's still one of the NC-17 films that you can actually pick up at your local Walmart. A place that won't carry parental advisory, will not carry X-rated films. However, they will carry the NC-17 rated Evil Dead. With that being said, it's not that bad. Yes, it's a nasty movie. However, we're never reminded that it's anything more than an actual movie. Maybe if you turn off the lights and crank up the sound and are alone, I guess maybe it could freak you out, but it's not particularly scary in my opinion. However, I understand how it might freak some people out. Not only that, the one thing that could actually creep you out about this movie is the fact that it's that it's relentless. Like It does not let up. It keeps going, and when you think that it's going to stop, it still keeps on. It's easily one of my favorite horror films and one of my favorite horror series. It's one of those that every time there was something new to be involved with The Evil Dead, I was there either buying it, whether it's a, a new Evil Dead video game, anything to do with the series, I was picking it up. So... My recommendation, if you haven't seen it, sit back, enjoy, have a good time with it. It's definitely one that you can get some uh, serious enjoyment out of. And I think that's going to conclude this episode. Remember that I am on Twitter, uh, and you can find me at Adam underscore FBGM. 
And also, please give a listen to our podcast uh, and our honest opinion. Good night.